thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. As I spoke about the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, I panned the audience and I saw Martin Young and Vicki here, previously members of our church, and actually, I know you're interested in all these things, so I'm going to tell you. Uh, I first met Martin when he was not long graduated from college. Carson Newman, I think it was, in East Tennessee, played football there, and came here to serve as the director of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He was probably about 23 years old, and I'm not even going to guess how old he is today, but it's been about, about 40 years ago, or more, really, more than 40 years ago. So you do the math, okay? Please take your Bible. We're glad to have you all here, by the way. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 21 through 31. And I'm going to read this passage from beginning until end. And you follow along in whatever translation you're reading from this morning. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It's generally agreed by interpreters of the book of Galatians that this is the most challenging of all the texts in this epistle. And the reasons are obvious, perhaps, to you. One of the reasons is that there's a lot of talk about some figures in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, many of us rarely ever give attention to the Old Testament. And we do that to our own detriment. 
Remember what Jesus says about the Old Testament in the book of John. He was interacting and you might say debating with some of his many detractors. In, in John chapter 5, the scripture says that Jesus said to them in the middle of one of those skirmishes, he says, you search the scripture because you believe that in it you have eternal life and it is they who bear witness to me. Please remember that before there was any New Testament as we call it, the only scripture, and please forgive me Lord by calling it the only scripture, the only scripture that was available was what we call the Old Testament. And needless to say, it has one focus, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So we need to acquaint ourselves. These people to whom this was first written, remember they came out of a pagan background to a great extent. There were very few Jews in the region of Galatia. After the church had been formed, however, a lot of Jewish people who claimed to be Christians made their way there. And we have come to know them as Judaizers. They were on a mission. And they had a different Lord. He was Satan. And it was His intention to undermine all that the Spirit of God had done in saving those people. These people had not read the Old Testament much. They didn't know the names Abraham, perhaps, or Sarah, or Hagar, or Ishmael, or Isaac. They didn't know much about Mount Sinai. They were people who did know very little, perhaps, about Jerusalem. So they were in the dark. So this is one of the reasons this is hard to interpret. And the flip side of that is it's an allegory. What is an allegory? An allegory is a piece of literature which uses emblems or symbols or characters in it to communicate truth. And it is not the easiest literature to interpret. I especially enjoy allegories, and let me be specific about this, children's allegories. <laughs> I don't think I've got the ability to know adult allegory very well. But one of my favorite books is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Some of you are familiar with that. And you know that there is the prominent figure, Aslan, and he is symbolic of who? Jesus, of course. And then there is the White Witch, and what does she represent? The devil, definitely. And she gave away, or peddled, whichever word you might want to use, she gave away Turkish delight. And what does that symbolize? Well, sin or temptation or both, correct? And then there's the great stone table. When I said that, I just got chills up and down my spine. And in that great allegorical children's story, when Aslan comes to the great stone table, he's coming there on a rescue mission. You see, one of the four children, the Provinci children who were in Narnia, Edmund, he was an imp. He was not a, a good boy compared to his three siblings. And he had given in to the temptation to eat the Turkish delight and found himself 
a prisoner of the white witch. She had lured him to that. And then we see, in my mind's eye, I see Aslan. He is shaven of his mane, and he's laying on the great stone. And the great stone is representative of the law of God. And the law of God exacts a price. And we, before we came to know Christ, we were under judgment of the law of God. And certainly, we see what the great Aslan does for one naughty boy. What does he do for him? The same thing he did for you and me. He lay out. And without any kind of resistance, he had all the power, Aslan did, just like our Lord Jesus. But both of them submitted to the punishment that belonged to you. And in the case of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to Edmund. So this gives us some reason to understand why this passage is a bit difficult because some of the analogies here, some of the allegorical characters or figures or entities, they're not as familiar to us because we're unfamiliar with the Old Testament. Now let's dig into the text a bit. Let's look at verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Now, there were people, these interlopers, who had come in and begun to try to dismantle the gospel. And the gospel that Paul preached is the gospel of God. And it's the gospel that says we have been saved by faith, by the grace of God. It's not of our own doing. But there's something innate in us that wants to contribute to our own salvation. The religion of man always wants to make his own contribution. And understandably so, when you think about how we want credit even for our salvation. It's hard for us to let go and realize that God has made a way that does not permit for us to get involved in that salvation. All we have to offer is our surrender to Him. This is why in the Psalm 46 where the Bible says, Be still and know that I am God. And the word be still means to drop your hands. Let go and let God. One of the translators translates that. And that's a good interpretation of Psalm 46 verse 10. In this text here, verse 21. Tell me you who want to be under law. Do you not listen to the law? We need to pay attention to every word in the Scripture. Even the articles like the word the. Notice in the first part of verse 21, he simply speaks to a group of people who want to be under law. In other words, they want their lives to be ruled by law, talking about their spiritual lives. And it's not even right to call it spiritual. It's religious life. Do you not listen to the law? When we think of the law of God, we think rightly when we associate it with the Ten Commandments. And maybe the broadening of that with the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. We do well to do that. However, we need to understand that when the Old Testament writers and scholars like 
Paul. Paul was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the greatest rabbis of his day. Before he came to know Christ, he had the best rabbinical education a man could get. Well, he was a man who studied the law. And it was not just the books of Moses. It was all of what we call the Old Testament. And so you do not listen to all the law. You hunt and pick and choose that which is more palatable to your ears and contributes and feeds your own self-righteousness. And so Paul had come to Galatia and he had presented this awesome gospel. And so these people who were pagans, they were polytheistic. Some of them had tons of gods. We don't know how many they served, but they served gods. And all of a sudden, they found that the void in their life, that which they had been seeking for their whole lives, was found in the person of Jesus Christ, in the work of Jesus, and they gave their lives to Him. And they had no history of the law of Moses, but these Judaizers who came in said, it's okay to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's okay to believe that He is God incarnate. It's okay, but you need to do more than just believe. You need to do something to add to what your belief has ushered you into. Isn't that just like the devil? To say we have to do something more to warrant becoming children of God? Now let me stop here before you begin to object to what I've said. When we come to know Christ, the Bible does say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But what follows those two verses in Ephesians 2? You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. There's a certain inevitability about when we come to Christ and we bring nothing to the table, we just say, Lord, have mercy on me. And He is ready to give us mercy and show us His grace. And what we are prepared for in that moment because who comes to indwell us when we come to know Christ? Who is He? It's the Holy Spirit of God. He comes to indwell us. And when He comes to indwell us, He begins to move in our hearts. He begins to shape our lives to look more and more like Jesus. And certainly there are fits and starts we all have in our growth. Nobody is fully grown in coming to Christ. You start as an infant. There's nothing wrong in the sense of being sinful to start out as a baby Christian. Everybody does. When Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 3 and really get on the, getting on the case of the Corinthians because they had been Christians for three or four years and they were still just drinking mama's milk. They were not mining the Word of God to get those great truths out so they could know them and more importantly after having known them to apply them in the way in which they live. But he begins by saying, babies need milk. 
Peter picks it up in 1 Peter. He talks about how like newborn babies, we're to crave the pure milk of the Word. And if we are people who have a hunger for God's Word and we read God's Word, God will teach us and we will grow. It's an inevitable truth. In the book of Colossians, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible says we are people who have a destiny. And Paul says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He says in the second chapter, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. Do you know every impulse I have not to sin, not to be legalistically religious, every inclination I have to sin, to do what I know is not right. The Lord says, don't do it. Holy Spirit works in our hearts and He convicts us of our sin when we do sin so we can get back on the road that He has established for us, the peace that He has given to us. So these people were people who brought this foul kind of religion to try to pervert the thinking of these newborn Christians. And believe me, those newborn Christians were impressionable, just like children are very impressionable. And the work of the Lord here through Paul is to correct that. Look at verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. Now let's stop here just a moment too. And let's think about the religion of the legalists of Jesus' day who did not embrace Him as their Lord. Jesus was not one to mince words. He got right to the point. And in Mark chapter 6, He's having this back and forth with some of the leaders of Judaism and he says to them, you have elevated the traditions of your fathers over the Word of God. You prefer the traditions of your father than that of the Word of God. And do we not do that sometimes? In church, we do that. Now, let me make an observation. Tradition in and of itself is not wrong as long as it's as it is in line with the Word of God. In fact, Paul talks in one of his letters, I can't remember to, it was either 1st, 2nd Timothy or Titus. He says this, he says, embrace the traditions of your fathers. Traditions are the living faith, I mean, the living faith, yes, of dead people, people who proceeded us. Traditions are faith-based. But traditionalism elevates the things that are dead in living men who are proponents of those kinds of things. You know the kind of traditions. I'm just going to mention one in a church I previously served. I was a relatively young pastor at the time, and the guy who was the leader of our music 
was a godly man. He and I are about the same age. And I was glad that when I got there, he had just been brought on as an interim director of music. He was a student at the seminary. And he asked me, is it okay if we blend the music? Meaning, with taste, continue to sing the great hymns of the faith. Aren't you glad for the great hymns of the faith? I love the great hymns, the quality and the depth of them. And he said, what I would like to do is introduce songs that are more contemporary in sound, but are biblically based. I said, that sounds great. And this young man, he was brilliant in his musical ability and his ability to just weave all that together without a lot of talking, no talking at all, just one thing after another. His musical talent and his heart for the Lord enabled that. And there was quite an uproar over that in the church. And I was with the deacons. We had a deacons meeting, and there were, all the deacons were there. Some of them never came to church, but they were always there for those meetings. <laughs> and in the course of the conversation, I, I had my opportunity, and I said, well, the Bible says, and one of the deacons stood up and says, I don't care what the Bible says. Well, that was very telling, and I was rather shocked, frankly. But his hand was revealed, wasn't it? And I could give you many stories over the years where I've run across people who adhere to regulations and traditions and ceremonies and rituals more than the Word of God. That same group of deacons, I thought it'd be fun, the first, and something to kind of build relationships. I came there, the pastor of the church in October, Christmas was right around the corner. I said, let's have a staff and deacon get together. And we did, and I thought, it'd be fun if we played Bible trivia. <laughs> my, my, that was a mistake. <laughs> because it came time to do the Bible trivia, and none of the deacons could answer any questions. I, I had to change directions quickly. And on my feet, figure it out. Thank God we have deacons who love the Lord, know the word. Thank God. Thank God for you deacons and our elders. We've got such quality people and so many others who don't have a title. You don't have to have a title, by the way, to be significant in the church. Do you understand that? In fact, it's almost better if you don't. Because you become a bigger target when that's the case. And then you might think you've arrived. Well, we never arrive, do we? Absolutely not. We're always going to be needing to grow. Let's look at the three stages of Paul's argument in this text in the remaining time which we have. The first, he deals with the historical background. And I already read verse 22, but I want to read it one more time. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. Who was his first son? Ishmael, whose mother was Hagar. Who was Hagar? She was Sarah's slave girl. She was someone who had no freedom. Now, who was his second son? Yes, Isaac. And who was the free woman? Sarah. So keep this in mind. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Now upon first reading this, I thought, 
why it was a fleshly relationship because he wasn't, I'm talking about Abraham, siring this child with his wife. But that's not really what's being indicated here, as we'll see. And the son by the free woman through the promise. Isaac was conceived and birthed naturally, even though it, it says here that it doesn't make mention of the body or the flesh, just like Hagar gave birth to her son and Abraham's first son, Ishmael, by natural processes. So something else is being communicated here. This one who came second, Isaac, he was a child of the promise. Who made the promise? Was it a miracle? I would say every birth is a miracle, really. Conception is just unbelievable. And then the child gestating and then old enough to be born and all the things that happen in the growth of a person. But the promise was made to a man who was a hundred years old when the promise came true. How many hundred-year-old men do you know have sired children? Do you know anybody? I saw where the oldest dog in the world died a couple of weeks ago. It was 31 years old. I, I have to question the validity of that. I think maybe they lied a little bit about that dog getting that old. But a hundred years old? And how was his wife? This is even more significant. She was 90. That's a miracle, isn't it? A miracle. And it was based on a promise which God had given. And we know in the Word of God, we are encouraged to believe God's promises. And sometimes He'll make a promise to a person or a group of people that is outlandish. It doesn't seem there's any way it could be given. If God makes you a promise, as far-fetched as it may be, you just hold on to what God has said and make sure it's He who's given it to you when you do. So we see that the people of God, whether they be of Jewish descent, true descendants of this one whom we know as Abraham, our spiritual descent, they're both miraculous because they're based on the promise of God. Whoever calls upon the Lord shall be saved. It does not matter whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. We've already seen that, haven't we, in the third chapter of Galatians? Remember what John the Baptist said when he was preaching on the Jordan River Bank, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I, John the Baptist, say to you, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. I'm happy about that. I'm not a descendant of Abraham, but I am his descendant spiritually because the Bible's very clear about that. That we who know Jesus, who are not Jews, are Jews not because we have not, are not Jews, not because we hadn't been circumcised or have gone through any kind of Jewish religion ritual, 
it's because we're, we're saved because of God's grace and our hearts have been circumcised, the Bible says in the last two verses of the second chapter of Romans. True descent from Abraham is not physical, but spiritual. It's by faith. Let's look at a couple of verses we've looked at prior to this one. Let's go to the third chapter and the 29th verse of Galatians. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And let's look at chapter 3. And I think it's verse... Let me see where that one is. Verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Thank God for that. There are differences between the boys who were born via Ishmael, the difference he was born to a slave as we saw, Isaac born to a free woman, but what the text would tell us is we're all born slaves. This is what the Bible would say. We're all slaves. Christ came to set the captives free. He came not to serve, but to serve and give his life a ransom. What's a ransom? It's a payment for a life. We were in bondage. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. So the historical background is important to understanding Paul's argument. His argument is well organized. It's reflective of the way that someone who was formally trained as he had been in rabbinics would have gone about it. Here's the allegorical background in verses 24 through 27. Look at verse 24. This is allegorically speaking for these women are two covenants. What are the two covenants in general? There is the Old Covenant. We call it the Old Testament. And the Old Covenant basically is arranged like this. God says, you shall and you shall not. Doesn't He say that? You shall and you shall not. You do or you don't. The New Covenant is different though. And it came to Abraham before there was any law written. And we see it. What does God say? It's an always in the form of a promise. I will, I will, I will, I will. What that says is, it's all His work. And don't forget that when He ignites life in us and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, the Holy Spirit moves in us. 1 John 3, 8 says, if you have the seed of God in you, i.e. the Holy Spirit of God or Christ's Spirit in you, it's going to happen that you're not going to live a lifestyle of habitual sin because the Holy Spirit comes and He looks for us. And we who know Christ, who have brothers and sisters who have fallen off in a ditch, they've been caught in a trespass, and that word caught in the book of Galatians is a word which was used to describe a little trap that was set for rabbits and such animals. And they were caught unawares. And sometimes we find ourselves being caught unawares. 
We are nonetheless responsible for our sins, but we're trapped. And what does the Lord want us to do who have been trapped and understand what that's like? And we've confessed, repented, and we go looking for them. That's what the Word of God says. Let those who are spiritual go looking for those who have fallen. You know what I believe a spiritual believer is? Someone who knows what it's like to blow it and is broken by it and humbles herself or himself before the Lord and says, Lord, I'm so sorry, brokenhearted that you have done that to your Savior, your Lord. And those people are not like the people that Jesus warned the disciples about. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. And in that same sermon, he says, be careful, get the log out of your own eye before you start looking for a little splinter in somebody else's eye. He was using hyperbole, obviously, but what he's saying is, hey, only the people who know what it's like to fail the Lord because they've done things in their own fleshly interest are people once restored who are going to be sensitive enough to go and bring a brother or sister who's lost her way or his way back to the Lord. Two covenants must be understood. The Old Testament based on law and the New Testament foreshadowed by Abraham's experience with the Lord and foretold through Jeremiah based on the promises of God. Some of you have been reading the book of Jeremiah. doesn't seem like I, when I started, I don't know if I'm going to get through it one more time. It's a long, it's the longest book in the Bible, by the way. It has, doesn't, doesn't have as many chapters or verse headings, but is, there are more words in Jeremiah than any other. And it's such a, it's such a heavy one, isn't it? What it says about the people in Jerusalem and Israel and how there were very few who were followers of Christ, in anticipation at least, and God the Father. And it's basically negative from our perspective, but we know that God uses difficulty to draw us to Himself, doesn't He? Under the Old Testament, God's people were Jews. Under the New Testament, they are Christians. You say, what? Aren't there Jews who are going to heaven? Yes, they are. Peter, James, John, Paul, Barnabas. Just list all the people. 3,000 were saved, remember, on Pentecost. And as far as we can tell, all of those were descendants of Abraham. But they're Christians now. If we want to call them Christians, they are. That was not a name that Christians gave themselves nor God, really. You remember it was a critical way of speaking about those who had trusted Jesus in Antioch, a Gentile city, and they were made fun of, and that was the way they were made fun of. They called them Christians, and the name stuck. It was a pretty good name, and still is. But we need to understand. Hagar and Sarah stand for the Old Testament and the New Testament. To understand these women's roles we would be, do well to read this passage that we're looking at a little further. 
Look at verse 25, how this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. What happened at Mount Sinai? Moses got the law, didn't he? And corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So all those who are attached to the law as a means whereby they can get right to God, and they're just grinding it out, grinding it out, grinding it out, hoping they don't miss up something, those people are in the league with this woman, Hagar. She's called Mount Sinai. Now let's look at verse 25. She is... This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she's a slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, now Paul is shifting gears to Sarah. She's our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you brothers, like Isaac, you are children of promise. Now this is where there's personal application for us. We need to ask ourselves, are we children of promise? Am I a child of promise? If you know Christ, you are a child of promise. You heard the gospel and you embraced Christ as your Lord, not simply your Savior, as your Lord. And you have become a child of promise like Isaac. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. There was probably a 13 to 15 year difference in the ages between Ishmael in Isaac. And I enjoy watching families that have several children in the ages span. And it's the younger children really initially at least look up to their big brothers and sisters, don't they? They admire them. Now that gets messed up along the way when the big brothers and big sisters don't find them cute anymore. You know what I mean? But the Bible, when we go to Genesis 21, we see the statement of the writer there says that Ishmael mocked this little boy. He mocked him. This little boy was born according to the Spirit. How are we born again? We're born again by the Spirit. Unless you're born of the Spirit, you're not going to be in heaven, right? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. This is a reference also to Genesis 21. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Now, there is something that I would like to note. That Ishmael became a king also. I think. I'm pretty sure he had his own tribe of 12, I think. I think that's in the Bible. So God allowed that to happen for sure. And we know the strife in the Middle East probably has its roots in this particular story. That you had these two who 
were half-brothers, and we know what's going on there, and we need to pray, don't we? Every day. My heart breaks when I think about what I'm hearing and seeing, and at the same time, I'm a little excited, frankly, about it, because this is why I am a little excited about it. I'm no scholar of prophecy, but if I understand correctly, there has to be a great attack on Israel, and it's going to be a coalition, roughly speaking, of Russia and Persia, i.e. Iran, and Cush and Put. When you put those two and start looking at those, those have to do with maybe Liberia and some of South Sudan, even part of Turkey, different regions, and they're going to come against Israel. There's going to be this mighty defeat, and they're going to be wiped out. It's going to take seven months just to clean up the bodies that are going to be strewn who are lost in that coalition against Israel. That's the beginning of the Great Tribulation, by the way. And I've never been one to yank on that bell very much, but we, we may be there. And it can be traced back, perhaps, to this sibling rivalry in the book of Galatians and Genesis. Well, let's look at verse 31. So then, brothers, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now, I want to make quick note of two things. What happens when we're like Isaac, children of promise? We are like Isaac, not Ishmael. And what we can expect is persecution. Who persecuted Isaac? Who was it? His half-brother. His half-brother, Ishmael, persecuted him. Now, you may make a connection in some way between the descendants of these two people. Now, understand that there are spiritual descendants from both of those people also. I hope you understand that. That all who know Jesus, regardless of their ethnicity, their nationality, what they were before they came to know Christ, we are all directly related spiritually to Abraham. He's our father. And we're brothers and sisters with those people. So, but we will experience persecution. I just finished reading 1 Peter. And in the reading of it, I was once again struck by how that piece of beautiful literature has to do with being ready because it will be the will of God for some of you that you will suffer. Are you ready to suffer for the Lord? Well, we might ought to get ready. It may not happen in an outward way, but we'll, we will have some of that. And here's another thing. We receive the inheritance. We who are not natural descendants of Abraham, we are in on this wonderful kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord, for doing that, giving us that. May the Lord take this text and cause us to think about it and apply it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for its complexity. And I pray, Lord, that you would help erase things from people's minds that I said that were off base, but make those things which were taught stick in their hearts and their minds. Help us to rejoice in our heritage spiritually. 
We thank you for Abraham. We thank you for Sarah. We thank you for Isaac. Thank you, Lord. We thank you more for the seed of Abraham, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, make us men and women like you. We ask this in your name. Amen.